This week, I went to see the new Star Wars film, The Revenge of the Sith. It's already been watched by countless uh, cinema goers, some of whom literally queued through the night to watch the spectacle. Without question, Star Wars is one of the blockbuster film series of modern times. Although I must confess, I'm not always a big fan of blockbusters. Let me tell you why. Uh, In recent years, the big film market has been dominated by a sub-genre of film known as the disaster movie. If you're unfamiliar with this, then the basic plot is fairly uh, invariable. Human beings are threatened with total uh, annihilation. And it seems whatever the threat, the more devastation that the filmmakers can produce for us on the screen, then the more of us will pay our money to go and see it. Why the fascination, I wonder? Perhaps at least in part because such films are really not that far removed from the real world that we live in. Indeed, we don't need to go to the cinema, do we? We only need to turn on the box in the corner of the room to see such terrible disaster. And what are we to make of it? What are we to think as Christians, or perhaps indeed as seekers of God, when we see these terrible disasters, be they in the Indian Ocean or on the streets of New York or wherever they occur? Where is God in all of this? Indeed, we may wonder at such a God who allows, permits, or even potentially, in some cases, causes such devastation. Which is why it is so vital that in every age and generation, we come back to the Bible. To come back and gain a picture, a view of what God is really like who God really is, how God really works in the world. And as we do, we see that, yes, He is a loving God, but He is also a holy God. He is righteous. He is just. He is not an impotent figure. He deals with sin, and He brings His wrath to bear on sin and sinners. And yet, he is also a God of mercy, who in great love restores a fallen people to himself. 600 years before Christ, a spokesman for God named Zephaniah preached just such a message to his day and generation. With God's judgment gathering on the near horizon, Zephaniah calls on his nation, the nation of Judah, and the surrounding nations to humble themselves before the Lord and repent. Yet he also predicts that even if judgment should come, and that looks likely, there will be hope for humanity the day after tomorrow. Because the God who in relation to sin is in the retribution business. 
is the God who, in relation to sinners, is in the restoration business. And so as we continue our series, Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets, we'll see something of both of these aspects, retribution and restoration. Let's turn back to Zephaniah's prophecy then. If you uh, have your Bible open, then that's probably better. You'll find it quicker. It's again on page 944. And we'll be referring to verses throughout the three chapters. We'll be skipping around a little bit, so you'll need to be alert. I'll need to be alert, and we'll need the Lord's help. So let's pause for a moment and pray for God to help us. Father, we thank you that every portion of your word is inspired by your Holy Spirit. We're grateful for Zephaniah, And thank you that though he preached centuries ago, he continues to teach us truths about who you are. We pray then that you will enlighten our minds, soften our hearts, and may we be good soil for the seed of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Zephaniah is a very interesting case of a prophet. For one thing, he is nearly completely absent from the book that bears his name, so that one scholar says he's almost invisible from his own prophecy. Indeed, the only mention of Zephaniah is found in the very first verse of the very first uh, chapter, which, as you'll see, is pretty standard prophetic form, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. What is unusual, however, is the short genealogy or family tree that follows. Because we're told that Zephaniah was the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. It's puzzled people this. Why is it there? It's not in any other prophecies anything quite like this. The best guess is that the fourth name there on the list, if you look down to the text, Hezekiah, was none other than King Hezekiah. That is, Zephaniah's great-grandfather was probably the Hezekiah who ruled over Judah some years previous to this. And if that's right, then Zephaniah likely mixed with the upper classes of society, the aristocracy, And it certainly makes sense of the fact that Zephaniah has almost inside knowledge of the sins within royal circles and even within the priesthood. The other little scrap of information we have about Zephaniah is also found in that first verse. That Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. You might recall that Josiah was one of Judah's good kings. Most of Judah's kings rebelled against the Lord, but Josiah had reformed the nation and rid the country of much of its idolatry. Some have even suggested that Zephaniah's prophecy may have provided some of the impetus for Josiah's turnaround. Well, whatever the truth of these things, Zephaniah the man is not nearly so important as the message that he brought. And in the time remaining, we'll see that his message has two essential parts to it. 
The first and by far the longest, and uh, we will be spending most of our time on this, so don't panic when we're not getting to the second point. It's what we might call retribution for the nations. Whenever you study a, a passage in depth, it's sometimes helpful, I find it helpful, uh, to take a, a photocopy, or if you have a Bible you don't mind writing in, and work your way through the passage and circle any, any key words in the book. Often these are, as well, the repeated phrases. It's interesting to do this with Zephaniah, how many times I was able to circle the words, the day, the day, the day. Because you see, in the uh, first few chapters, indeed from chapter 1, verse 2, right through to chapter 3, verse 8, what is called the day of the Lord is the prevailing theme. This day of God's retribution. Now, there are at least three things we can see about, say about this day. Three observations. To begin with, the day of the Lord will be a universal phenomenon. All nations and even nature will be affected by this day. Look at the devastating opening to the prophecy, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. When I cut off man from the face of the earth, and right from the start we're told that not just one people group, but nations, man, in the general sense of the word, will be swept away by God. And therefore what we have in the verses following this, nearly till the end of the book, are specific addresses to particular nations who are part of this uh, global judgment. Quite surprisingly, you might think, the Lord begins with his own people. I will stretch out my hand, verse 4, against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. However, while judgment begins with the people of God, it certainly doesn't stop there. The prophecy moves on to speak about judgments for the surrounding nations. Verses 4 to 7 of chapter 2 tell us there will be judgment for Philistia, a nation, you can imagine this in your mind, to the west, of Judah. Verses 8 to 10 we learn that the Lord's anger will come against Moab and Ammon, this time to the east of Judah. So to the Cushites, that is the Egyptians to the south, they won't be accepted from this dreadful day. And even the mighty nation of Assyria to the north will face the Lord's retribution. Verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria leaving Nineveh utterly desolate. And coming round full circle, as it were, Zephaniah returns again to Judah. And in particular, the spotlight then turns on the capital city of Jerusalem. This city, which represents the national leadership, the religious leaders and the royalty, chapter 3, verse 1, woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. In fact, this is one of the key messages of the book of Zephaniah. That the aristocracy, the high rulers of society, will not be exempt from the Lord's discipline. 
Recently we heard, didn't we, that Prince Harry had checked in at Sandhurst to do some military training. And the sergeant major there promised that the young prince would be treated just like the rest. Sounds pretty ominous. If he steps out of line, said the sergeant major, he'll get it from me like anyone else. It's precisely what the Lord is saying to his own people, to the high circles of Judah. Regardless of your status, whether you are royalty or not, whether you are priesthood or not, you too have sinned. You won't get off the hook in terms of my judgment. Now, I think there's some very important things that we should learn here under this heading. First of all, we learn about the universal reign of God. The universal reign of God. You see, Zephaniah makes it absolutely clear that no nation on earth is not accountable to the Lord. This God is not the God of Judah only. He is the Lord of all. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad and let the nations tremble. Another thing we learn, and just as important, is about the universal reality of sin. This picture in Zephaniah is striking that the whole world having rebelled against God, are now accountable to him. That's the symbolism of these nations from the north, the south, the east and the west. It's, a, it's picture language. It represents all people. In other words, the whole earth is sinful and guilty before God. That's what Zephaniah is saying. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul made explicit in the New Testament. That Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, alike, are all under sin. That there is no one righteous, no, not even one. Romans 3 verses 9 and 10. Now I'm not naive to the fact that these two points come as quite a shock to many people today in the kind of society we live in. Indeed, maybe you're, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, well, you know, this is news to me. I'm not accountable to God. I'm certainly not a sinner. But listen, that's exactly what Assyria and Philistia and Moab and Ammon and Cush thought. They believed they were beyond God's jurisdiction. Even Judah, the Lord's own people, thought they were above the law. But they were wrong. And in God's sight, which is the only thing that really matters, we are sinners. We are rebels without a cause. Those who have rejected God and therefore deserve his righteous retribution. Because we're sinners. And that's true universally. However, there's a crucial caveat to add to this and something else we learn uh, and that is about the individual nature of sin. It's interesting to look at the different judgment oracles for the nations against Judah, against Philistia, against Moab and Ammon. And to notice there the individual sins which are mentioned in each. Because you could imagine that since there is a universal judgment, and since people have universally sinned, 
that these nations sins have somehow been clubbed together, you know, thrown together in the one bag. But you know, that's not how God works. He judges nations and he judges people according to their particular transgression. You see, Judah will be cut off because of her idolatry. She will be judged because she has broken the covenant that God made with her. She has worshipped pagan gods like Baal and Molech. This is her sin. This is why the Lord will search out Jerusalem as with a lamp, verse 12 of chapter 1, to find and bring to account those who have rejected him. Whereas Moab and Ammon, they will face God's judgment because they have scoffed at the Lord's people. They have insulted them and the Lord is angry. Chapter 2, verse 8. While Assyria, on the other hand, will be punished because of her self-reliance. For she said, chapter 2, verse 15, I am and there is none besides me. And friends, this removes the leg that sometimes we stand on when we say, well, you know, it would be unfair for me to be judged like that person. Because, you know, I'm better than so-and-so. That person who committed murder, done some terrible thing. God shouldn't judge me for that. He shouldn't judge me like them. He shouldn't judge me for their sin. You know what? You're absolutely right. He shouldn't. And he won't. He'll judge you on the basis of your own sin. He'll judge you on the basis of what you have done. Maybe not the murder of your actions, but maybe the murder of your heart. Because Jesus said, didn't he, that it's like murder when you're angry with your brother or your sister and you hate them. Now, we don't only learn that the day of the Lord will have a universal impact, though it will, we also learn, and I can think of no other way of putting this, that it will be simply a terrible day. On his 75th birthday, Winston Churchill gave a little speech to some dinner guests, and he quipped to them. He said, I am prepared to meet my maker, but whether my maker is prepared to meet me for the great ordeal is another matter. Yet despite the humour, what is not funny, Zephaniah tells us, is the reality of the encounter between a living God and an unpardoned sinful people. And when you read the description of the day of the Lord, it's just, it's just overwhelming. It will be a day of wrath, chapter 1, verse 15. A day of distress and anguish. A day of trouble and ruin. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corners. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Such a dreadful description that some have suggested that it cannot only refer to the immediate events coming in the latter part of the sixth century. 
which in real terms will involve the Babylonian Empire, this rising superpower in the East, who will wipe out the nations mentioned here in a few years and take Judah captive. That was the immediate fulfillment. But such is the depth of the destruction, it must be pointing forward to a parallel and more terrible day. And friends, that day has not yet arrived. But it is coming. And it will be terrible for the sinner. The day of God's final judgment. Remember what Jesus said about the town of Capernaum? Jesus had done many great miracles in this little town. But by and large it had refused to believe in him. And this is what Jesus said of it. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two towns that were destroyed by burning sulfur. Remember the story in Genesis? More bearable for them, says Jesus, on the day of judgment than for that time. You think some of the stuff in the Old Testament was bad in terms of judgment, Jesus said. It's nothing like what is coming. Now that's not easy to preach. And I sense from the reaction it's not easy to to listen to. But it's important to preach. And it's crucial to hear. One of my grandmothers, when uh, she used to hear I was going to preach somewhere, she would give me some advice. And... uh, It was in utter seriousness. She would say, give them hell. (laughs) By which she meant, preach hell. Presumably because not many today are preaching it. See, preaching now is very different from the days when my grandma was young and went to church. When there was fire and brimstone preaching everywhere you went. Swung the other way now. And I say with respect, you could be in some churches for years and not even be in danger of being tinged. And the problem is, when we don't preach God's judgment, His wrath, His anger and sin, people just don't know why they need to be saved. They don't understand why they need to come to God in repentance and faith. And we need to remember this, those of us who are Christians, when we're sharing the gospel with others. That the good news is only good because the bad news, the backdrop, is so very, very bad. Don't be like me when I started out sharing the gospel with my friends who weren't Christians. And out of concern for what they might think, removed half of it. Took the danger of condemnation out of my witness. Guess what happened? The grace that we present ceases to be amazing grace. It just becomes interesting, ordinary. One offer on the table among many others of self-fulfillment and improvement. Come to Jesus and he'll make your life a little bit better. He won't make your life a little bit better. He'll save you from eternal hell. That's the good news of the gospel. And if we don't have such a hope, then this day of the Lord that is coming is a terrible prospect, as Zephaniah knew. And if that's the case, then even more troubling is the third observation, that the day of the Lord is imminent. 
verse 14 of chapter 1, the great day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. You know, we sometimes speak of this day or that day in the far-flung future. Maybe you speak about the day you're going to get married or the day you're going to leave home or the day you're going to retire or travel the world. And we're speaking of something probably that's years down the line, 10 years maybe, 20 years. That's not the kind of day Zephaniah is talking about. This is very near, very close. Which is why, right at the heart of his prophecy, right in the center, there is an imminent call for immediate repentance. Chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble in the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Even at the moment of greatest peril, Zephaniah says, there is a way out. And the way out, he says, is the way down. Because he says, you must be humble before God and rely fully on Him. And nothing has changed, friends. That is still the route to mercy and discovering God's grace on our knees. Sadly, the people of Judah and these other nations would mainly ignore this call and the fire of judgment would surely come. However, while the Lord will pour out His retribution, He also has a plan to rescue a remnant. And that brings us to chapter 3, verse 9, to the end. And a bit more briefly now, a few words concerning restoration for the remnant. One thing we learn from Zephaniah is that God's restoration emerges out of his retribution. As one scholar puts it, the day of the Lord takes the ravages of the day of Yahweh to melt away the wicked segment of the chosen people and bring forth a remnant. God brings his judgment to bear, he exhausts his wrath, and then, and only then, he brings forth a purified people. So that the day of the Lord is something like a two-sided coin. On the one hand, you have the many, for whom this will be a day of judgment destruction. But on the other, you have the few, the remnant, for whom this will be a day of great salvation. And though they may not be many in number, this remnant, they will be a thoroughly multicultural society. Just as all nations have sinned against God, so purified sinners from all people groups will be included in this restored gathering even Gentiles. Verse 9 of chapter 3, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, and that all of them may call on the name of the Lord, and serve Him shoulder to shoulder, from beyond the rivers of Cush, beyond Egypt. My worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offering. The opportunity of salvation is for all nations, not just for the Jews. And yet there is hope for the Jews. On that day, verse 11, chapter 3, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me. 
Verse 12, But I will leave within you the meek and the humble, those who trust in the name of the Lord, the remnant of Israel, who do no wrong. And God achieves this by a sort of two-part process. Have you ever seen the TV programs when they go into an old house and they completely renovate it? What's the first thing they do? first thing they always do is they clean out the rubbish. They get rid of the junk. Then they restore. And that's exactly what God does. He will remove certain unhelpful things. Their pride. Their deceit. Their fear. Their enemies. Their reproach. Their shame. And their idols. Sin and its consequences will be done away with. Then God will restore them. He will restore their safety, prosperity, purity, worship, trust, joy, and his presence among them. Let me tell you this. Nothing pleases God more than doing this. For while God in his justice must punish sin, God in his pleasure loves to save sinners. Sin makes God angry, but salvation makes God sing. Probably the most well-known verse in Zephaniah, a beautiful verse, 17 of chapter 3, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to do what? To save. And therefore, He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. few words of conclusion. Something you may not know about uh, Zephaniah is what his name means. Zephaniah actually means hidden. He's probably, probably born during the reign of a very wicked king by the name of Manasseh. And Manasseh was a ruler who did almost unspeakable things, even killing young children. And so it might be the case that Zephaniah was so named because he was successfully hidden away during the time of the king's wrath and anger. Now in some ways, the meaning of Zephaniah's name is the message of Zephaniah's prophecy. With this universal, terrible, imminent day on the horizon, day of retribution, what hope have we of being hidden. Or to put it another way, do you have a hiding place? You see, there's only one place you can go for shelter on this day that's coming. But 600 years after Zephaniah, on a cross outside Jerusalem, God poured out his fierce retribution on his son. And exhausting God's wrath, the punishment due for our sin, Jesus died that we might be restored to a relationship with God. Jesus took your retribution to provide for your restoration. Some of us had a place where we hid when we were young and our parents were angry. I wonder, do we have an eternal hiding place? Under the cross? If so, we can say in the words 
of chapter 3, verse 15. With great joy, the Lord has taken away my punishment. Let's pray for a moment.